everybody, and welcome back to the Legal Weekly Wine, where we talk about the week's hottest legal topics. It is the second week of January 2024, and we are off to a great, interesting start in the legal world. We are going to talk primarily today about the oral arguments that were held this week in the D.C. Court of Appeals, the the Federal Court of Appeals, on Trump's presidential immunity claims. Um, There's some quite a few interesting arguments that came up that I don't think I was expecting at least, but I'm fascinated by, as well as the closing arguments in the, the goodness, New York civil fraud trial. We're going to talk briefly about the Iowa caucuses as well as the Bobsy twins. So if you want to find out what all of those are about, stay tuned with us for this episode. And in the meantime, um, do hit like and subscribe so that you can catch our next videos as well as get them um, out there to others who may enjoy the show. I'm Virginia Tarani. I'm with Tarani Law LLC because you never need a lawyer tell you do. And I am joined by co-host Dr. John Vile, who is the Dean of the Honors College for Middle Tennessee State University, who is also a preeminent scholar in the Constitution, the amending process, and constitutional law, among other things. But welcome back. Good to be here. And Happy New Year. I know we said Happy New Year for last week, but it is still the new year, and I have brought back the bubbly. Um, It was quite delightful. Did you bring Bubbly? Does yours have some genuine H2O in it? (laughs) I think it's the start of some H2O with some grapes is how mine go. (laughs) You have filtered H2O, right? Yes. Processed H2O. Processed and carbonated H2O um, with a a little nice grape on the side. Um, But, yes, so I've brought back our our rosé, our cava. Um, so that's what we are drinking again today. It is quite nice. I don't always drink the same wine twice, especially on our, on this show, but that's one has been quite delightful, especially for a shame, champagne type of influence. So cheers again and off we go. All right. So the other thing is we, I like to start with your ties too. I know you've got a new tie for, for every show and it's not new, but it's, it's one of my favorites. And I don't know, American series, Yule library circa 1890. It's a beautiful picture of a stack of, I guess a a library bookshelf with stacks of book. Yes, it's uh, very much. And so you have to know that one of my staff members has been laughing at me for the last two weeks. Oh, why? Because, because she discovered that when I was about 30 and, and had thought I was going to die, that I began making a list of all the books that I wanted included <laughs> into my coffin. <laughs> and she says, you wanted to be buried in a library? <laughs> and at the time, it made perfect sense to me. Uh, the, the titles would probably have changed since then. Uh, but I do like the comfort of books. You so, do. It's well, it's like, you know, the popes and the, the bishops who get interred in churches will just bury you in a library. Well. <laughs> including the one in your home. I you know, I don't know. <laughs> well, either that or, or or a pyre made of all the books With that the- I have. <laughs> uh, it would be quite a sight. <laughs> it would be. The resale value for the home may not be as good with a body interred, but you never know. <laughs> never know. <laughs> 
So certainly appropriate for a professor. And speaking of professors and learning, the Law Unscripted is fully up and live online. It is for um, undergraduate students, law students who are studying for law-related exams, including the bar exams. And Dr. Vile and I also have a part in those. Um, there are over, I think there are about 50 videos that are available for purchase, as well as specific subject outlines. But enough about that. Let's get to our legal topics of the week. And I think we're going to start with the the appeal, um, the oral arguments in the D.C. appeal court. Um, we've got the, so it's in the federal court, it's in the U.S. federal courts, um, and it's the court of appeals. So the district court is headed by Judge Chutkin. And this is the one where Jack Smith's case against Trump has included four counts of criminal indictments, four criminal indictments um, against Trump, basically for conspiracy to overthrow and overturn the election. We are at, goodness, last time we had gotten to their appeal to the Supreme Court to skip this intermediate review. Which was denied. Which was denied um, without any official opinion. Um, no actual word or brief, just a, a denial. So, and that's not uncommon, by the way. True. Uh, the, the, the court's not under no obligate. I mean, the, there's a procedure that you can move in in cases from a district to the Supreme Court. But the more typical route is to go first through the circuit court. And one advantage of that is you have an additional set of arguments to consider. Right. Uh, and frankly... If the Supreme Court would decide if they're satisfied with what the circuit court does, uh, they can simply, if they deny a cert to it, then that leaves that opinion in place, which is exactly. not, not a foolproof, but pretty good indication that the court does agree with it and that that would be the ruling precedent. And and that's where we are, is depending on the ruling that's being made right now for this intermediate court, exactly what you said, it is entirely possible, not at least equally possible for the Supreme Court to get it and say, yes, we're going to take it and now decide because we're at the proper point in right. review, or we agree with the district court or just refuse to hear it and that, or the Circuit. Intermediate court, circuit court, the court of appeals, um, and will let that decision stand, which says this is precedent. That's now the standing interpretation of the law would be whatever and, the decision is. And I do not follow circuit court cases that closely. So my point of reference is not as strong as it would be for the Supreme Court, but I have rarely seen a case in which one side seemed to get as shellacked <laughs> as Trump's did in this case. And particularly, you know, primary way of studying law, is, as you know, is a Socratic method, which often yes. involves hypotheticals. And in this case, one of the judges threw out a hypothetical, which frankly was answered in an absurd fashion by Trump's counsel. It seemed and alarming. Basically, I mean, right. I mean, one of the arguments that Trump is, well, the primary argument that Trump is making at this point is that he is immune either from criminal prosecution. As, right. Mm -hmm. And 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 for one of two reasons, one is he's immune because we've already 
the, the, the Senate has already exonerated him on impeachment charges of interference with the election. Exactly. But but then probably more importantly for, for future cases, assuming we don't have that many presidential impeachments, is the notion that as an executive, anything within the outer sphere of his authority, he has immunity for. And the, and the Supreme Court, there's a case, the Fitzhugh case, which I think we've talked about before. Right. The court has given wide president. Is it Fitzgerald or Fitzhugh? Fitzhugh, I think it. Okay. Well, what did I say? You said Fitzhugh. I think it might be Fitzgerald. Okay. I, I don't have it in front of me, but the Supreme Court has decided that in civil cases, Anything remotely, pretty much remotely under the president's authority, we're not going to come back and question. And I, I have some problems with that case, but I, I get it, which is a president should be able to make day-to-day decisions without worrying about losing money over it. Mm-hmm. Now, how far are we willing to take that? Trump says that in addition to he can't be he can't be prosecuted because he's already been exonerated of impeachment. He basically says you also, president has complete presidential immunity from criminal prosecution. Right. And so the hypothetical that Judge Tan, I believe it was, threw out is, well, if in the course of his official duties, the president, and is there some significance to SEAL Team 6? (laughs) I'm not military related, but the best as I understand it as a lay person who watches a lot of criminal docu you know criminal documentaries as well as procedural shows and dramas is it seems to be almost the hit team right the the, 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 six, team, the teams. exactly that they're the ones who do the undercover seriously well so the, the question she poses if the president were to send teal team six to assassinate a political opponent, mm-hmm. uh, would you be able to be to be sued? And and the answer well, no, prosecuted. I'm sorry, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Could you be prosecuted? And the answer is only if he had been impeached and convicted right. uh, through Congress. Only then would you be subject to prosecution. Now, th- there's so many pro- and, and I think, frankly, the court was sort of shocked by this answer. I think they thought um, they were giving an absurd hypothetical. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's it, it shows what it shows is you could make almost anything that a president does into an official action if you had a clever enough attorney. Right. Um, and if you're going to say that a president can execute a political rival and the only I mean, think about it. If your only remedy is impeachment. He could threaten, to, in conviction, he could threaten to execute anybody who voted for his conviction. Exactly. Um, so You'd never get it, impeached it, because you were too afraid to vote for it. Right. I mean, this is, on the surface, you do almost say, well, this is just an absurd hypothetical. But, it, boy, it pointed to the extent of the argument that is being made. And, you know, to, to remind the audience, under English law— you could not impeach a king. Right. Um, the king can do no wrong. That was a legal principle. If you wanted to get to the king, 
you could sometimes impeach, and, and in England, impeachment sometimes included execution along with it. Right. It wasn't just removal from office. You had pains and penalties and, uh, and, the, and the like. And death. Right. <laughs> but we decided that the king was not above the law. And to say, particularly in a criminal, well, and it goes back to, you, you remember, when he was running for office the first time, Trump said, braggadocio, you know, <laughs> I could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue. Right. And now, you know, would he have had, see, would he have had immunity for that? Well, he wasn't president yet, so maybe not. But in his own mind, he could get by with anything. If we, if we start electing presidents who think that they're above the law, we might as well, you know, I would actually prefer a hereditary kingship. Mm. Uh, to and uh, you know an, an elected monarch who can just do whatever they want. I, I'm. It does seem to be outside of a republic, and well, it the would not democracy be a republic, idea, a democratic republic. Right. It, exactly. It seems it would be outside of this democratic republic that we've set up, where it would be okay instead of a president, we're giving them authoritarian rule. Well, and we're electing a dictator. Right. So, and this goes to the, the, the briefs that have been filed in the lower court, a president does not have a duty to run for re-election. Correct. They, they are permitted to run for re-election if they've only had one term, but there is no presidential duty to do that. And for that matter, there's not, there's not that much in the Constitution. I'm not sure that there's anything in the Constitution that suggests that it's the president's duty to oversee elections. Correct. Those duties are sort of spread out between the states and, 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 Congress. and Congress. But this is, I mean, this is, this is an argument. Now, the, the person who's come close to this argument was President Nixon. Right. After he left office in a famous interview with David Frost, in which he basically said, if the president did it, then it can't be a criminal act. Um, but this same president accepted the a pardon. pardon from Gerald Ford because he was concerned that if he did not, he could not, in fact, um, well, he, he would could be prosecuted. Have been prosecuted and maybe even sent to jail. And that was part of the argument. That was part of what was addressed by the judge's questions as well as um, the attorneys on both sides was, well, if if the president is immune from anything, then why would Ford have pardoned Nixon and right. why would he have accepted a pardon and, if he weren't worried that he could justifiably be prosecuted for right. some of and, his actions? And, and there were there were a lot of criticisms, and I was among those who who did thought Ford's pardon at the at the very least was premature. But I think I've lost my train of thought there, <laughs> which sometimes happens. It, it's okay. We all do. Um, where was I headed with so, that? So, yeah, the pardon right. from right. Ford. But what, what, what Ford said, Ford said, this is a, what, I mean, essentially, when he accepted that pardon, he accepted the fact that he had committed a criminal act. Right. That's in the record now. Right. Uh, 
So and so going back to and, and incorporating this other piece that you mentioned of yes, it's an immunity argument of why the president should have full immunity, but there's this new interpretation or this alternate interpretation of the impeachment clause of the Constitution, where it says yes, a, a a president can be impeached where it's the articles of impeachment by the House and conviction by the Senate. But the way that it's now being interpreted, and I'd love your thoughts on this because you are the scholar on the actual articles of the Constitution and how they're supposed to work and be applied. But the argument seems to be, well, as you mentioned, if if he hasn't been impeached and convicted by Congress, then there's no other remedy. If he's been impeached, then he can be criminally prosecuted well, and convicted. But if not... Okay, let's get our terminology cleared up. True. Which you're basically right. But impeach, impeached is simply accusations brought by the House. Correct. The articles Conviction of is what would have removed him from office and possibly barred him from future office. Mm -hmm. So the argument... And let me read the... Please. Well, if you've got uh, okay. it. Yes. Okay. So here's what article. So the argument, the argument that Trump's team is making is effectively that if you've been impeached and you went before the Senate and the Senate did not convict you by a two thirds vote, then you are immune from future prosecution. It's a double jeopardy argument. You've already been in jeopardy once. You can't be put in jeopardy again. But it's based on some ambiguous language, actually, in the Constitution. So Article 1, Section 3, Clause 7. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to the law. Now, Trump is saying he was not convicted, therefore he cannot be subject to future prosecution. As if I've been found innocent, so right. you can't now find and, me guilty and somewhere actually, else. I thought the argument till, till this morning, I actually thought this argument was a new argument, but it's actually not. Um, I am reading, and watch me not be able to find it now. I, I printed it off. Uh, I'm up to page 154 on it. Oh, wow. Here we go. 155. Rudolph Moss, who was the Assistant Attorney General Office of Legal Counsel, issued a memorandum opinion for the Attorney General on August 18th of 2000. Okay. And the question is whether a former president may be indicted and tried for the same offense for which he was impeached by the House and quitted by the Senate. And in this, let's see, it starts at 110. So in this 45-page, single-space opinion, he concludes that the issue is not completely settled. Mm. But his conclusion is that, yes, uh, there's a difference between the, the trial in the Senate is not a criminal trial. Right. And double jeopardy applies when there's a double trial. And the, the if I remember, it probably was the district court in D.C. I think handled this argument very well in saying that this clause is only addressing cases. What It is saying that what it's trying to do is 
we'll go back to the English example. In the English example, if you were impeached, you could also be drawn and quartered or be hit. <laughs> right, right. Um, under the American system, impeachment and conviction, the only penalties are removal from office and possible exclusion from future office. So it's political so, implications, not right. criminal. Right. It, it's not, to my, to my reading, it's simply not addressing what happens if in, in, in the case at hand. And if normal criminal convictions. If you are convicted and removed from mm-hmm. office, you can be tried. I don't think it's saying you can't be tried if you weren't convicted. It's just simply not addressing that issue. And I think that, I believe it was the U.S. District Court opinion, I believe that that made a fairly conclusive argument on that behalf. Uh, but it, but it's a fascinating argument. I mean, both arguments are fascinating. I think the one is just extreme. The, the notion that a president could literally carry out an assassination and the only way you could, and, and remember, Trump has previously argued that you're not subject to impeachment once you leave office. Right. Right. So what you know? What if he had? What if he had ordered a hit on an opponent, and you didn't find out about it till after he left office, or and they I, resigned? That was another right. application that they argued in in the oral arguments was well, what would prevent then a president just from resigning and thereby not be right. subject yeah, to I, impeachment? I, I, the argument for absolute anything <laughs> is very weak much less immunity for the top official, uh, you know, elected official in the United States. I don't think that has any legs. I, I right. really, and, and I mean, the, you, you had, now you had two Democrats and one Republican appointee, but all of them seem equally concerned about, you know, the kind of claim that was being made here. Right, the extent of it. Well, and then there was a, a third issue that I, so I actually you listened. You identified, yes. Yeah, to, to part of the argument. I was thrilled, unlike the, the New York fraud case where we don't get immediate access to the arguments. Um, we have to find them secondhand. This one, there actually was a button where you could listen into the arguments. And I, I did so for at least about half of it. And during that, I, there was this other, what seemed to be a random issue, and it wasn't random, it just hadn't been um, touted in the public as much as the immunity one, which is the hot button issue. But there were questions that were raised of, well, can we even take up this appeal? Do we even have jurisdiction? And honestly, until I heard that, I had assumed, like everyone else, that, okay, well, the U.S. Supreme Court said they don't have jurisdiction yet. It goes back to the lower court, so this appellate court has to— They didn't say they didn't have jurisdiction. They just refused to They said they weren't going to take jurisdiction. True. Very true. Um, But so my assumption from that was, okay, well, the appropriate court that does still have jurisdiction is this appellate court. And the argument that the court was making— Not that either party, but the court was making was, we don't technically have jurisdiction yet, is based on this, it's a a case called Midland Asphalt. And I was like, what is is this case? I had not heard of it before, Um, although I had been doing it in practice for many years as a prosecutor, I had not gone back to this case. And ultimately what it says is an appellate court does not technically have jurisdiction over a preliminary matter until after a final decision has been made, a final order. 
Which would mean you first have to decide whether the president is guilty. Yes. And in, and then decide it's a defense. Oh, but, okay, you you get to use a term though, right? Yes. So it's, Explain it's an interlocutory appeal. I know. And I was like, I think I know what this is, but I looked it up just in case. But technically it's an interlocutory appeal is what they have done where they've said, okay, we don't have a final decision on the merits. But this piece is so central to our case that we would like to appeal just this particular part of the case, this legal question, and get a ruling from the higher court on this legal question so that then we can move forward with the factually based trial. And both sides apparently would prefer to move forward. Yes. Forward. I mean, think of it from the defense side. If, if Trump is, in fact, immune... He can save a lot of a lot of lawyers' fees that he may or may not pay. Right. Why have a trial? Uh, <laughs> if I'm immune, I don't get to why would I be put on trial at all? We'll save everything. I go right. on with and, the and by others. The, by the same token, um the government wants to nail down yes. that if there is a trial, it was worth pursuing. Correct. Uh, because otherwise, well, no, he's he's immune. So yeah. I think it's unlikely that they will take this dodge. But uh, it, it is and, interesting because one oh, of the judges asked the the attorney, the you know the prosecuting attorney. They said, "Well, aren't aren't you the one who should want us to rule that we don't have jurisdiction?" And therefore, it just goes back to the trial right. court. You get to have right. your case. And Jack Smith and, and the attorney, they said, no, well, yes, temporarily, that would be a win for us that you simply don't have jurisdiction. We can invoke this Midland asphalt rule. You, you know, ask you to return it to the trial court. We can go on with our lives. But in the long term, with what could be coming up, it is in our best interest for it to be decided now. So they were asking the court to use their discretion to take the case outside of this rule, basically to put aside the rule to declare, yes, they're going to accept jurisdiction um, because just hearing oral arguments didn't accept jurisdiction. Only a final ruling on it would. And but, I had thought of it. You know, one of the fascinating things about teaching constitutional law is usually the first chapter that you deal with, you deal with a lot of issues re involving standing. And jurisdiction, does yeah. Does a taxpayer have standing? Mm -hmm. uh, does an amicus who subsequently died or is no longer in high school, if it's a case against, you know, whatever. And we tend to think of those as being on the periphery. Right. But they're really at the threshold. If you don't have standing, then court isn't going to give you going to tell you one way or the other. Exactly, and and I hadn't thought of it, but I remember back in uh, one of my favorite cases as a prosecutor was, and you'll remember this case. There was the Florida versus Jardines case that came down um, while I was a prosecutor, and this was one of the dog sniff cases um, that said you can't go beyond the curtilage. You can't go into the curtilage of the home to do a dog sniff um, unless it was through consent, et cetera. And this case had just come down, and in Virginia, th the state law was unsettled as to did the curtilage extend to, you know, which part did it extend to motels and hotels? 
Um, and the Supreme Court through Florida versus Jardines had only taken up the home. So I got this interesting case where it was a canine search outside of a motel room through the hall, you know, well, not the hallways because it wasn't internal. It was the external walkways outside of the, the hotel, the motel rooms. And what we ended up doing is we had a suppression argument where we did a motion to suppress that we argued before the trial. And I argued that it should be allowed, the dog sniff should be allowed, and therefore the evidence that was obtained as a result thereof should be admitted. And the defense attorney argued, well, you know, this is cartilage. It's the outside door of a motel room is just like the outside of a home, and it should be suppressed. The evidence should not be allowed. And it was such a pivotal legal issue where ultimately the judge ruled that it was going to be allowed. The motel was separate than the house and the outside right. of the door didn't count as cartilage. Um, but what we ended up doing was we couldn't do an interlocutory appeal. We had to finish the merits of the case. So we were we were faced with, well, okay, here's the judge's ruling. It's preserved for appeal. We've had the hearing, we've preserved the issue, we can bring it up on appeal, but only after the case has been decided on the merits. And in that case, what we did is the defense attorney stipulated and did a conditional plea where they said, we are going to plead guilty conditionally as, you know, if it goes up on appeal and the if evidence they win is, the Kurtley's argument, they're going to take it back. Exactly. Then the plea is yeah. withdrawn and the case goes away. Um, it's dismissed against him. But if we lose the appeal, then we're yeah. the guilty plea will stand. And that's exactly what we did. So there was a final order in our case of a finding of guilt with this plea agreement that then we took the final the final order up on appeal but on this legal issue ultimately we won and the plea went through because they lost that legal argument right. but right. that was technically the correct way to get to the appeal rather than to do the immediate interlocutory appeal and then go back to trial Fascin fascinating issue that i was not expecting and and snuck in there um, what I want to find out is how long it takes them to make this decision. Yeah. Because obviously Jack Smith would like to get this. I mean. Time is of the yeah. essence. Yeah. Yeah. And so that leads us to New York. So yes. there isn't an indication from the D.C. court as to when the decision will be made. But right. the federal, the. New York court for the civil fraud case, he said, Judge Ingram has said, I plan to make a decision before the end of January. That's right. And so, so give us some background on what happened this week with that trial <laughs> as well, we try to piece it all together. Yeah. Now, now, to go back, I think I'm right on this. This trial verdict has already been given, in a sense. For most of it. The judge has already decided that Trump has engaged in some kind of fraud. Correct. In his business dealings in New York. And the question is simply... Is it, was it the original 270 million in penalty? Is it a, what's the new one? 350 or 370, yeah. Now. Um, now there is some issue apparently that remains as to, does it apply only to Trump or does it imply, does it apply to Trump and his sons or the whole, right. the whole enterprise? Uh, so we're basically at the penalty stage, but essentially, 
and this is highly, you know, as, as we both know, you, you, you can in criminal, well, and I guess civil trials too, you can make your own defense, a pro se. As a uh, pro se person, yeah. Uh, the, the, axiom, the, the axiom on this is that the person who has himself for a lawyer has a fool for a client. Correct. And, you know, w- without meaning to use the term fool to refer to an ex-president here. Right, but that's, that, that's that certainly the applies in a that case here where, you know, very rarely is an individual at this point in an, prepared to do a closing argument. And so he had asked to do so. The judge said, well, you're free to do so. As long as you refer, as a lawyer would have to do, only to facts that were brought out in this case, uh, and if you keep it short. Correct. And He refused. Well, he refused, and he was denied. And then, as I understand it, somehow Trump's attorney said something that seemed to open the door for his client to speak, and he began speaking and essentially dumped on the judge and the right. judicial system and the Justice Department and Joe Biden and everything else, um, which were not facts and evidence for the most part. Correct. Um, and judge let him speak for about five minutes and he closed it down, uh, which was his right to do. He's he's trying. He seems to be doing his best to indicate that he's been as fair as you could be. You know, it, it'd be hard going to out make, of his way. Yeah, I mean, beyond normal rules, sit in front of somebody who's accusing you and your staff of being frauds and of being cheats and, you know, being tools of of Biden and take it. But he's done it. Mm -hmm. Um, And ironically, the same day that he's accusing Biden of weaponizing the Justice Department, the Justice Department is bringing Hunter Biden, uh, you know, for trial for. Uh, tax evasion. Right. So right. It, it wasn't a very, you know, well thought out argument. It didn't help his, well, it didn't help his legal case. Correct. It kept him back in the news at a time just before the Iowa caucus. <laughs> uh, some people are going to feel sorry for him, probably thinking that he had to attend the trial. Right. He was not obligated to do so. Uh, but he got a bigger platform on the news by arguably making something of a fool of himself or or certainly, you know, making a lot of questionable accusations. He captured the headlines at a time where name recognition is important and maybe it'll actually help him in in, in the caucuses. It could. And so... The, the fascinating part for me as an attorney is all of the, the normal rules of procedure for courtrooms have been just tossed aside. Well, and something else that we need to address... And, and this is, you know, it, it seems if it happens to one of your political opponents, you sort of grin. Okay, so somebody swatted Marjorie Taylor Greene. Right. She deserves it, one could think. Of course, right, right. just uh, as with a different, yeah. But this works both ways. And this, several judges now in these cases have been subject to to swats, you know, people calling, saying, you know, there's a something happening at the house. You better there's get over a bomb there. Bomb threat, mm-hmm. right? Bomb threats. You know, they're subject to bomb threats. He was uh, that morning, the yesterday morning. The judge had a bomb threat to his home. Right. This I mean, swatting this is, happened. Well, and of course, 
of course, Trump is no longer president. But think about this. This is, if you were a president and you were immune, absent, an impeachment and conviction, you could do this routinely. Right. Uh, or encourage not- others. Pardon? Or encourage others exactly. to do it. Uh, This is, I mean, this is, these are serious crimes. This is not just, you know, well, isn't it funny? You know, somebody, prosecutor, uh, somebody comes after him. Well, yeah, if if he's guilty of a crime, he he should be subject to jurisdiction just like anybody else. Of course. But these kind of things, these are outside the pale. These are Uh, threats. And and I know Trump has said that he isn't ordering anybody to do it. And I, I actually believe him. Um, But the harder issue for me is why isn't he shutting them down is why isn't he saying, you know what, there's there's a process for this. We're going through the process that we we believe in for the American justice system. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem like it's going in my way. I believe it's politically motivated, but we're going to use the process. Don't I'm I'm asking my followers not to do violence, not to threaten violence. I mean, there's a way to say, please don't do this on my behalf. I'm not wanting you to. And then it seems separate, but there's no shutting down. So Judge Chutkin has been threatened. Judge Ingerin has been threatened. Multiple prosecutors have been threatened. Um, Willis, yeah. Willis and Jack Smith have been threatened. And you and I have said this before is, you know, what's the incentive to be a judge nowadays? I wouldn't want to be. You know, we get threats. I, when I was a prosecutor in Newport News, Virginia, the the times when I would see threats were gang related, where right. we would have one of our prosecutors. I was on the drug, gun, and gang team at one point, and and our our chief deputy. Wait, the anti gun. Yes, no, of course <laughs> we weren't doing them. Um, Let's be clear here. <laughs> yeah, we we were on the prosecuting drugs, guns, and gangs. Um, they, I have a, an aside on that in a second. Um, but on this team, you know, we had our deputy chief who was in charge of this unit, and she was prosecuting major crimes for gang, gang-related gang crimes. And it actually was terrifying because one of the gangs dropped things on her doorstep. Yeah. They found out where she lived and they left something on her doorstep. And it was clearly a threat and yeah. a, a means to intimidate and part of the, you know, to get their charges dropped, to intimidate, to place fear against witnesses, against the the prosecutors of proceeding forward, of we can get you. And that's what's happening in this case. But going briefly back to the drugs, guns, and gangs, one of my favorite things that ever happened with with mom um, is the the first couple weeks when I started prosecuting in Newport News, I I was on this drug team. And um, Mom asked how it was going, and, and I was like, it's it's great, Mom. I get to do drugs on Thursday. <laughs> Very nice. One of my favorite comments, and, and, and I paused, and I was like, that didn't sound right at all. And she's like, no, it didn't. <laughs> um, so, but can we go back? Yes. The, the one thing that I dig or, or comment that I have to make, everybody in business Everybody in sales for many years has read one book in common, right? Yes. Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Exactly. So you're on trial. You could lose up to $300 million, which for many people would be more than a drop in the bucket. But even more than uh, that, th- loss of business in New York. Right, right. And so what do you do? How do you win friends and influence people? 
the one person who's going to make the judgment you antagonize <laughs> throughout the trial. And then just so he doesn't forget, on the last day of the trial, you make the same accusations uh, counter to his order. Right, against the person uh, who's I think he needs, judging I you. Think Mr. Trump needs to go back and read Dale Carnegie. (laughs) Well, and even that, you know, even at the basic level, when we're first learning about mock trials and and in law school, one of the first things you're taught is when you go into a courtroom, read your judge. And you tailor your arguments, you tailor your behavior as to what the judge is indicating. So in this case, it's like he's not reading his judge. Now, that being said, you got multiple audiences. Mm-hmm. True. And for Trump, the political might be more important than the legal. Right. So we've already discussed by pulling the stun or however you would describe it, mm-hmm. he did get a lot of coverage. Right. Now, to me, the coverage isn't one that would make me more pro-Trump. Uh, but to some people, it's like, well, he's in the news. He's fighting the good fight. Uh, he's against the establishment. Right. Uh, and and, so and many people believe it's a political that, that it is politically based and that sure. he is being singled out and he is being wronged and targeted. Um, so it would make sense for the candidate. You know, we don't want our candidate to give up. We don't want our candidate to acknowledge that this is OK and it's fair when it's not. Right. Um, but as far as legally speaking, it is quite unusual procedurally. Um, if you have an attorney and counterproductive, a- absolutely. The attorney makes the closing arguments. Right. I have never seen in my 18 years of practice, I have never seen a judge allow a defendant in civil or criminal trial to make a closing argument in addition to or in place of their attorney. If they represent themselves in this pro se basis, then sure, they give their own argument. But if they want to speak the idea is, well, you're a witness. You have the opportunity to, to speak as a witness on the stand in your own defense as a witness, giving testimony, right. but not in closings. And what the judge in this case, as you were indicating, says is you can't introduce new evidence in a closing. That and goes for anybody. can't do that. No, we can't. We can right. only talk about what has been introduced, right. what has been allowed, the facts that did come out. I am not and, allowed in a closing to introduce things that didn't that were not proven or at least it, not discussed. Right. And, and this, by the way, it, it relates indirectly, but it relates to this matter of the difference between an impeachment trial True. and a legal trial. Yes. One. Although, in my judgment, one should only be impeached for offenses that rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors, which, by the way, clearly excludes maladministration. Right. uh, Which is what Mayorkas. Right. You know, this this attempt to impeach Mayorkas right now is based on, well, he's not, you know, he's not taking care of immigration the way he should be. Well, Constitutional Convention, and I have, you know, a two-volume book on on proceedings of the Constitutional Convention. Initially, one of the proposals was that impeachment would be for maladministration. Right. And people said, no, that's that's political. Well, Just in a don't sense, re-elect impe- them. Right. Impeachment is a political process. It's one would hope that you wouldn't impeach people simply because you politically disagree with them. But it's pretty hard to shut down a member of Congress if they want to say something. 
Right. Uh, and I mean, we saw a shocking example of this over this last week. And, you know, without getting into the details, uh, we have a prosecution going to uh, hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress for refusing to testify. Right. Well, he hasn't actually refused to testify. He's refused to testify. Uh, he's willing to do it openly, but not, uh, not which I, I think he's actually, this is fairly weak. I, I think if he testifies, you, you usually go through uh, process. You find out what they're going to say before you put them on live TV and that sort right. of thing. But he shows up to a hearing unexpectedly, and one person, and I'm not going to use the terminology that she used, but she basically questioned his manhood. Mm. And it was almost, I mean, this is like a clown show. Right. Oh, uh, you know, all the comments, and and you have people, you know, one of them rightly pointed out, he said, well, you know, last, last year, several members of Congress uh, were subpoenaed to testify uh, as to what happened to January 6th, and they ignored the subpoena. Right. Uh, why don't we su subpoena them as well? And it, it just became, but, you know, this being said, you somewhat, ex now you don't expect it so much in the Senate, but mm -hmm. particularly in the House, the House was the people's house, and the people are often led like, <laughs> like the waves and the, and the wind. Right, but they're based uh, on the popular vote. That, that, that's right. Mm -hmm. And and often, well, of course, both are now based on popular votes. I, I should say, but, right. But they have two-year terms, so they're on a very short leash. Mm -hmm. And they all, you know, the House was often thought would be, more, the senators, it was thought, would be the more, you know, some older, wiser, more experienced, uh, greater leeway to do what was in the public's best interest, as opposed to necessarily what the public wanted at the moment. Right. But, you know, the... What I'm trying to point to is, in an impeachment procedure, you expect the kind of politics that you try to keep out of the courtroom. Mm -hmm. Now, in this case, the person trying to bring politics into the courtroom, in my judgment, is a defendant rather than the government itself. Right. Okay. We haven't talked about the Bobsy twins, and this has really been bothering uh, me. Yeah, we need. I said it at the beginning, so everybody's waiting on edge. Is what in the world are, do okay, the Bobsy so, twins have to do with anything? And you know, as a twin, did you read these? I didn't. I read the Babysitters Club and Nancy Drew, but I never read the Bobsy twins. Okay, even and though we I also, was, I am a twin. Encyclopedia Brown, if I remember, we used oh, to very read much. and enjoy Encyclopedia Brown. So I. I bought uh, some Bobsy Twin books, and I saw one that immediately caught my attention. It's the Bobsy Twins Go to Washington. Oh, taking okay. Taking groups of students to Washington. I thought, this is going to be exciting. Wonderful. And Is it like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? No, it's really not. <laughs> they mentioned some of the buildings there and that you have a Congress and a president, and that's about <laughs> it. But what I discovered is that the parents of the Bobsy Twins should have been incarcerated and their children <laughs> should have been taken away from them because they are constantly allowing their children to get in situations, walking through the woods to gather information on crimes, getting in police cars to follow people, uh, chasing people down to get their license plates. <laughs> there was a good deal of child abuse going on in these stories. <laughs> and I think about 
about that with Nancy Drew is like, now, what parent would allow a child to, to do these investigations? <laughs> so I don't know that there's a legal remedy. I, I suspect that the uh, the the statute of limitations has has gone out on this, but. Uh, Those poor Bobsy I don't know twins. how the Bobsy twins survived. <laughs> 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 the different form of parent, you know, they talk now about helicopter parents. Uh, this is, is about as far removed from a helicopter <laughs> parent as you can get. Very true. The times so have changed. Read what your kids are reading. You may not. You may. You know. If you don't under. If your kids don't understand why they have a curfew and whatever, it may be because they've read too much of the Bobsy Twins. <laughs> right. Forget drugs and alcohol. They're going out on on investigations and putting exactly. themselves in danger. <laughs> yeah. So th- that was. Um, w- we did. I mean, as as dad, you know that we. Uh, <laughs> We spent so much of our childhood reading detective stories. I, I mean, all of the the detectives. And I remember still that when when asked what I wanted to do when I grew up, which everybody's asked, I was like, I'm going to be a missionary actress detective. That's that was my recollection. Yes. And and you and mom were like, and how are you going to do that? <laughs> Don't quite understand. <laughs> so um, I, I kind of think of my role as an attorney, at least as an actress detective um, of, of piecing things together and then performing for the judge or the jury. Uh, missionary work. I hope that I, I Maybe do. Maybe this good. is our missionary work. Very well, could be. Spreading the news of the American legal system. Not quite the gospel. <laughs> Not um, quite. But, <laughs> but, but certainly democracy. based on biblical <laughs> principles of fairness and justice and equity. Absolutely. Uh, maybe there's a tie there. Absolutely. So let's end it up with the Iowa caucuses. Um, okay. I know you wanted to, to mention that for sure. So, so what are your thoughts here? Well, we got two, you know, we have debate this last week, sort of debate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a small to, debate and then a town hall by Trump yeah, himself. Yeah, and I mean, the most significant thing actually happened, what, an hour or so before, a couple of hours before the debate when Chris right. Christie announced that he that he was withdrawing from the race. Right. Uh, so, But you were already down to only two appear, appearing on stage, DeSantis mm-hmm. and Haley. And, you know, I think both of them, they did adequately. I don't think either of them knocked it out of the park. The, the irony was that the person who has refused to attend any of these debates still might as well. And in fact, I, I, I almost wonder if I had debated, if I would have insisted that you put an empty chair there. Oh, interesting. Uh, you know, three people were invited, put cha- three chairs up mm. there. And then, which maybe would have reminded the participants that it was as important if they want to get the rate. I mean, the person ahead is as far as we know in the polls is neither DeSantis nor Haley, it's Trump. Mm-hmm. And very little was said about him. And 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 frankly, it's it's hard it, it shows the 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 hole that Trump still has over the party that the two candidates who have most prominently criticized him, Asa Hutchison is, you know, Right. Holding what five or ten percent? Uh, yeah, it's... Christie has had to get out, and you know, even even Haley and DeSantis, you know, Haley is saying, "Well, he was the right president for the right time." Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he was president during the time where he was challenging the the re- election results. I don't think that, you know that doesn't seem to me like he was the right person at that time, but. 
what we have nonetheless is we have the the caucus the Iowa caucus is coming up on Monday. It's supposed to be cold and snowy, but these but this is Iowa, <laughs> right? Uh, these these are people who will probably uh, probably take pride in the fact that neither snow nor rain nor sleet nor, nor hail, else, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know they're they they they're going to they're going to attend. There's usually a large voter turnout. I mean, this is well. No. The, oh, you don't think so? Well, I, I no. guess in percentage you, you, to other right. caucuses. I mean, primaries don't have high voter turnouts. <laughs> what you have is you have turnout by very, very partisan individuals. Sure. And in the Democratic Party, that usually means the more liberal. In the, mm-hmm. in the Republican Party, it usually means the more conservative. So people will get out, but... Uh, but it does take some commitment. I mean, it. You know, you had the choice of staying at home, mm-hmm. eating popcorn, watching a movie, drinking or bubbly, out in the cold <laughs> to go to a situation where you're going to hear people say things about candidates that you probably already know, right. and then you're going to have to reveal to your friends and neighbors what your position is, right. Uh, and you might show up and you're the lone Asa Hutchison, you know, supporter. And so then you need to decide, well, you know, who's closest to your position uh, or maybe, you know, maybe you're in a Maybe you're in a call. Maybe you're in a town where there are very few Trump supporters and you have to decide. Does my vote count? Yeah. If I, you know, if I don't go for Trump, then who would be the next closest person? Mm-hmm. So it's it's very I mean, it's. It's very similar, I think, to the to the New England town hall. Uh, you know, if you read Tocqueville, he was very impressed by New England because everybody mm. would, it was it was almost like ancient Greek democracy. The people gather together and they decide in an assembly what they're going to do. And this is very you know very similar. So it's you know it has very it's very democratic in one respect. Sure. It's undemocratic in the respect that first you only have Republicans, and right. then among Republicans or Democrats, depending on the caucus. But then you're only going to have those who are committed enough to give up a whole evening in what might not be. I mean, some people thrive on political controversy, but I suspect a lot of us are tired of it, right? I want to go to we another. We even talk about it, and we get tired right, I of it. I want to quarrel with my friends and neighbors over. The difference between DeSantis and and Haley, and you know, do we want to want Trump back or we don't want Trump back? So it'll be it'll be pretty fascinating to watch. Um, you know, if Haley can come in second, uh, and particularly if she can do the same thing in uh, in New Hampshire, suggests that she might have a path to the presidency here. Right. Um, what's fascinating is. We we watched uh, rewatched Dave last night. Oh yeah, the the movie from the nineties. Yes, wonderful movie. Love it. And what's fascinating is Haley has not disqualified herself from being vice president to Trump, mm. which seems very odd. That um, does seem odd. Um, Christie, of course, you know, that said he was out, mm-hmm. um, and you know if. The odd thing about it is the chance that Trump would choose someone who had challenged him this right. late is, is you know, 
he's going to choose a Huckabee Sanders or, or a or Ramaswamy, or, yeah, or, you know, so, someone like that. Uh, but it, it'll be fast. You know, it's the first of the year, mm-hmm. and it will be followed. You know, within what two weeks or so. Uh, that by sounds the, right. By the New Hampshire uh, primary. Uh, so first caucus, first primary. Um, we'll see what happens. Democracy in action. Yes, very much so. And just like I hated it growing up, I'm sure my son will take no part of it and be like, what's on TV? <laughs> no, I would rather not watch with you. We did subject you to an awful lot of uh, TV <laughs> <laughs> We did. We did. Um, we, we were uh, uh, dutifully sitting in many a den and many a time watching Many a political action. And even when you got to go 12 or 24 hour trips to see grandparents, what did you get to listen to the whole way? NPR. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite stories about you and NPR, you know, you are truly the, the quintessential professor. And, you know, I even think about this with how much you listen to NPR. Every t- you, don't, you listen to no music, once in a while a little bit of classical, but you're always with NPR. And how many road trips did we take where it was like, how many times have we heard this story now? Now they're just recycling on, you know, every three hours they play the same thing. Um, but didn't you get pulled over one time and your excuse was, I'm sorry, I was listening to NPR and I got, I just got distracted and the officer let you off because it was so believable. I think that probably <laughs> was the case. Yes. I had just come off an interstate and probably, yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> I mean, I, I can imagine this police officer, this is a unique, <laughs> unique reason for speeding. <laughs> He goes back to the I'm station house. I'm surprised he didn't call, instead of calling the legal authorities, he didn't call the medical authorities. Uh, right, you need to check in on this Dr. Vile person. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, thank you for talking with me. It is, as always, delightful for us. I hope um, all of our listeners are also enjoying. Don't forget both to hit... Them. Yes, both of them. <laughs> Please don't forget to hit like and subscribe so maybe we have three or four followers instead of two. Um, But truly, it is a pleasure. Certainly, everything, every week, there's something unique and interesting in the legal field. Um, And I'm pleased to share that with you and for everyone listening. And we will catch you next time on The Legal Weekly Wine.